wondering uh, earlier, like five minutes to the hour, I was looking around. There was only about 12 here. I'm like, wow, I'd just be preaching to 12 people today. And then all of a sudden, everybody shows up. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. I know we make it easy on you sometimes by putting the words up here. And I see most of you looking up there, thinking you're getting out of turning in your Bibles. But uh, just to remind you how to find that book, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn there. Our passage is going to be coming from Isaiah chapter 7, beginning with the 10th verse. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol and high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have come, not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So reads the word of the living God. I was just thinking as I was reading through that, so often we read some of that passage in the Gospels. And I don't know how often I've ever heard a sermon necessarily from the original text, which is here in Isaiah chapter 7. That's what I'm going to endeavor to do today. Levi reminded me this week as I was studying of some important facts to keep in mind when you study or teach or preach the Bible, and especially when we deal with the Old Testament. A set of study notes that he shared with me from Timothy Keller stated we should read the Bible as redemption history and not simply as a body of spiritual and moral information. This means that every part and text of the Bible is part of the big story of salvation and attests to God's saving purposes, which climax in Jesus Christ. Therefore, every text is really about Jesus. While there are particular ways that you approach scriptures to attain this goal, the story is the same. We look for the scarlet thread in Scripture, that, that common thread that leads to the coming of the promised Messiah and reveals the story of redemption. Today's passage is a little easier to see the big story in because it provides us with a very familiar Messianic prophecy. Let me begin by providing you with some his, historical context 
of what's taking place in this passage. Around 735 B.C., Ahaz, the son of Jotham, became the king of Judah. Shortly after King Solomon died, if you remember your Old Testament history, the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom called Judah, which included the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, which was made up of the other ten tribes. Ahaz was the king of Judah at the time of this text in Isaiah, which is the southern kingdom. The kingdom had been ruled by various kings, and they're identified in Scripture as kings who either did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, in other words, they served God, and they led the people to do so, or they walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, which meant that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahaz was a king who did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, he was quite evil. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He made idols to the Baals. He burned incense. He burned his son as an offering and a sacrifice. And he offered sacrifices on the high places. All this is described in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, if you want to look that up later. After becoming king, Ahaz began to have problems with his northern neighbors. Israel, who is led by Pekah, and Syria, led by Reason. We might believe that the current Middle Eastern problems are recent issues. The scriptures show us that it, it isn't. It's been going on for centuries. And probably will continue for many years to come until the Lord comes back and resolves it. The king of Assyria, which covered an area east and north of Israel, in modern-day eastern Syria, southeastern Turkey, northern Iraq, and part of the northwestern part of Iran, was becoming a superpower under the rule of a king by the name of Gileth Pilzar, I believe is how you pronounce his name, the third. Rezin and Pekah, were forming an alliance with some other nations, and they wanted Ahaz to join this coalition to fight against Assyria. Ahaz declined the invitation because he believed that the fight against Assyria would fail. Risen and Pekah sent an army into Judah in the attempt to overthrow Ahaz, and they wanted to establish a puppet ruler. almost sounds like a history book today, doesn't it? Everything going on back then was... Things that take place today, it's just amazing, especially in that that region of the world. And after the public ruler was in place, they thought that he would bring Judah into this alliance. The first Israeli-Syrian invasion was unsuccessful in taking Jerusalem. However, the Judean army suffered the loss of over 120,000 soldiers And 200 women and children were taken into captivity into Samaria in just one day. So it was not a win for Judah at all. Within a short period of time, Rizan and Pekah began to organize another invasion. According to verse 2 of chapter 7, this causes Ahaz and the people of Judah to fear. 
and to tremble as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And you can get that idea of when the wind's blowing in the upper parts of the trees, how the uh, symbolism that they're talking about there, they were fearful there, their knees were shaking, they were, they were anxious. God, however, was not consulted by Ahaz or other people in the kingdom about this matter. Instead, Ahaz seeking God's, instead of Ahad, Ahaz seeking God's help, he took from the treasuries of the temple, and some commentaries believe that he emptied the temple treasuries, and then more from the royal treasuries, and sent envoys to Assyria to seek their help against Judah's enemies. The Syrians did eventually attack Syria in northern Israel and carried away many of their people into captivity. So this brings us up to the events of today's passage of Isaiah 7. Helps us to understand when we read just a short segment of, of Isaiah of what was happening as it was building up to this. As the Israeli-Syrian armies were attempting to invade Judah, God sent his prophet Isaiah to Ahaz to assure him that not only would the invasion fail, but that Syria and Israel would be destroyed after all this. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. It says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road of the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, be calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering snubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Risen and Aram, and of the son of Ramallah, Aram, Ephraim, and Ramallah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramallah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. In verses 10 through 12, God assures Ahaz that he will preserve his people and his covenant that he made with David. This is called the Davidic covenant. This covenant is God's unconditional promise to David and his descendants that a king from the line of David will rule forever over the house of Israel. That's been given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Ahaz is one of David's descendants and the current king over the throne of Judah. In verse 9, God said to Ahaz that if he did not stand firm in faith, then he would not stand at all. The Revised Standard Version of the Bible translates this, If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. 
God then extends grace to Ahaz because he sees that Ahaz is not standing firm in the faith. But God extends grace to Ahaz and tells him to ask God for any sign that might bring assurance and faith that what God said is true. Ahaz had unusually broad discretion, if you will, of what he could ask God to do. He could ask for an earth-shaking miracle. And it appears that that would have been done to help confirm this. Something that would testify to all the people that God will preserve his people and his covenant to David. But Ahaz is one of the kings of Judah who did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, I mentioned that to you. He was a wicked king. To ask for a sign would have required that he trust the Lord and not the king of Assyria or not in his own strength, something that he did not want to do. Ahaz attempted to sound pious with his response when he says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to test. When we initially hear that, we think back to Scripture that tells us not to put the Lord to test. And we might think, wrongly in this case, that Ahaz was either a godly man or trying to obey God's word, but he was not. Instead of being a righteous response of Ahaz, this was a rebellious response. Then God addressed the house of David. Instead of Ahaz directly, he's talking to others who may be present in verse 13 to offer comfort to them. God broadens his audience to include the descendants of David, such as Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, another name that if you are familiar with Old Testament scripture that you have heard, who at this time would probably be about 15 years old and was the heir to the throne and to the tribe of Judah. He will be the next king. Ahaz and the people are seeking peace with their northern neighbors. They're hoping for deliverance from their enemies. But instead of trusting God, they sought peace through human means. The best that this can accomplish is temporary peace. Verse seven of chapter, verse 14 of chapter 7 is one of the most debated verses of the Old Testament. Let's read it again. Therefore the Lord himself will give a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. There's been tremendous discussion of the meaning of the word that is translated here as virgin. And in many of your Bible versions, it probably uses the same term. And who that person is. I didn't even know that debate was going on, but I guess it's been quite contentious at time over the, over the centuries. Does this verse refer to one future woman and child, or is it twice-filled prophecy, which happens occasionally in Scripture? Meaning that it refers to something that should take place in the immediate time of when it is announced, 
and then had some type of a future fulfillment. We know from Matthew 1, verse 23, that the Holy Spirit through Matthew identifies Isaiah 7, 14, chapter 8, verse 8, and verse 10 with Jesus and his mother Mary. Some commentators believe that this prophecy in Isaiah was also fulfilled, at least in part, within a short period of time of after Isaiah announced it. They use chapter 7, verses 8, 9, 15, and 16 in their reasoning. And those verses are, For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be scattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramallah. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong from the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to, to waste. This child will live to witness the destruction of Syria and Ephraim within 65 years. And before he's old enough to know right from wrong, the two kingdoms will be laid to waste. And we know that happens. In this argument, there are, are several possibilities that are given for um, this viewpoint. Some have suggested that it refers to Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. Some to an, un, an unknown prophet. They don't even know who that person might be. Others to a collective remnant of Israel. And some suggest that it might have been Isaiah's own son, who is mentioned in chapter 8, verse 3, where it says, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mehar Shalal Hasbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So we can see why there are debates about who this is referring to and when it took place. But again, we need to look at the Old Testament through our New Testament glasses, especially with Matthew and Luke, that do identify at least part of this passage as prophecy to Mary and Jesus. I do believe myself that since the woman was must be a virgin who conceives a child, that this passage could not have been fully fulfilled in Isaiah's time. Maybe a part of it, but not all of it. This must refer to Mary and her son Jesus. There's been only one virgin birth who has given, or, or there's only been one virgin who's, been, who's given birth in human history, and that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. The very name Emmanuel, given to this child and used as a name for Jesus, means God with us. This is a sign that God has given to his, the descendants of David, and he's given to us, his children. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1 for a minute. This is the more typical place that we will look at this verse mentioned. Starting in verse 18.
Now the birth of, excuse me, now the birth of Jesus Christ. <coughs> now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, or bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until he had, she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Did you see the prophecy from Isaiah in verse 23 there? An angel of the Lord came to Joseph in this passage with a message from God. And in Luke 1, the angel Gabriel came to Mary and gave her a very similar message about who, what was going to take place and who this was. There is no doubt that the New Testament attributes Isaiah 7.14 to Mary and Joseph. From Isaiah 7, we see that this sign is from the Lord Himself. Anytime you see something repeated like that, it's something that we should take extra um, uh, attention to. That the Lord Himself puts emphasis on what's taking place. And that the birth that will take place is no ordinary birth. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is a miracle. This is a, not a common birth that will take place. And this is one of the very particular prophecies that Scripture gives pertaining to the Messiah. That's the only one it can pertain to. About 400 years earlier, one of Ahaz's forefathers, David, knew who he needed to turn to in times of hardship and trouble. It's a shame that Ahaz didn't follow his example. David wrote in Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. David knows who to go to when he's in distress. 
In Psalms 28, he said, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. But Ahaz didn't do this. Ahaz was seeking peace from human means. He thought he knew better than God and that he could fix this. He was looking for salvation in another man instead of God Almighty. And it's easy for us to look at some of these stories that we have in the Old Testament and wonder, how could they be so blind with the things that take place time and time and time again? But then I encourage you to go stand in front of the mirror and you'll probably see somebody looking back at you that does the same exact thing. How often do you or I seek to deal with our own problems, our own fears and troubles, instead of going to the one who loves us and wants to bless us? Usually we end up prolonging our distress or our circumstances in the process. Lasting peace can only come from God. Not only peace among the nations, which is something that not only we hope for, we're told will one day take place, but having peace with God, which was one of the things that this passage is really pertaining to and talking about the Messiah. Because there's only one way to have peace with God, and it requires Jesus to come to earth and do what he did and die on the cross for our sins. That's the only way to get that peace with God, for it to have taken place. Before the cross, we were at war with God. Before our salvation, we were at war with God. But God's gracious gift to the human race was achieved by him at the cross of Christ. Even after Ahaz refused to ask for a sign and to trust in God's promises, God told his children that he would provide them with a sign. More than that, that this sign would herald in the Messiah that was promised, telling them what to look for so that they will know that the time has come, that the Messiah is coming. The promise of this child who is called Emmanuel, God with us, is meant to be to the Israelites and to Ahaz and the people at the time in Isaiah that this passage is being spoken. It is meant to, to guarantee to them that God would preserve a remnant of his people and fulfill his promise to David. God keeps his promises is very much in the forefront of God's thinking as he is putting this passage out. Even though, in this case, it was over 700 years before the Messiah comes, it was still intended for the Israelites to know 
that God will carry out his promises and fulfill them and that the Messiah will come. The message in Isaiah 7.14 has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus over 2,000 years ago. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Redeemer. He is, as David prayed, our strength. The Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer. Our God, our rock in whom we take refuge, our shield and the horn of our salvation, our stronghold. He is our Emmanuel. If you're looking to your own strength or the strength of some other human being, hoping that maybe your spouse or your parents or one of your pastors or the president of our country is going to save you from what you fear, then ultimately you will be disappointed. God is the only one that we can trust to accomplish what is best for us all the time. And he will fully accomplish all that he has promised. And that to us, if you're a believer, should be a great hope and a source of peace and joy because we know that God will carry through what he promised. Today, this week, in this next new year, I exhort you to trust God. Give Him your worries. Give Him those things that distress you and cause you concern. I'll close with a word of comfort from 1 Peter 5. Starting at verse 7, it says, Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, Strengthen and establish you. That's a promise. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's share communion together. As the ushers pass out the elements, I ask you to just hold them until everyone has received and then we will take them together.
Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, oh, for sinners slain. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son, and leaving our spirit till the work on earth is done. When I stand in glory, I will see His King forever in that holy place. You are my Father for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit tell the work on earth is you're a child of God, you're invited to take communion with us this morning. It's an ordinance established by Jesus when he was on earth and he commanded his followers to observe it as often as they are together. It's intended to be a reminder of what God has done for us on the cross, what he continues to do for us every day, and what he will accomplish when he returns. On that day when he returns and gathers all his children to himself and takes us to be with him in heaven. This has a joyful ending to those who believe and follow Jesus. We will be with him and worship him in the new heaven and new earth for eternity. That's a a time concept that I don't think any of us can possibly understand. It will never end. But for those who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it has a sad ending. The Bible says that you'll be judged for your sins and experience the wrath of God. We don't want that. We pray that that is not your end. If you're not a believer or want to know more about having this relationship with Jesus Christ, we I ask you to come and see me right after the service. Don't leave today without taking care of that. But for those of us who look forward to that glorious day, 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and he had given thanks. 
He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I'll close with an uh, invitation to you. We have a birthday cake to Jesus in the back and some cupcakes and coffee. Don't want to make a habit out of letting you out too early, but we do want you to be able to spend some time with us. So you've got a few extra minutes this morning. Don't be so quick to run out the door. Come join us in the back. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. He so often is. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. And give you peace. God bless you.